It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Walter Anderson once said, nothing diminishes anxiety faster than action. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com or our social media channels. Download some after-episode extras, such as our thorough CQ Rewind show notes and our bonus Bible study questions available on our individual episode pages. And look for new videos for all ages every week at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what's on the table for today? Well, Rick, our question is, what things troubled Jesus? And our theme text is found in John chapter 12, verse 27. And now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. All right. So the question, what things troubled Jesus? Look, Jesus is our hero. His example, his teachings, his works, and his faithfulness are absolutely legendary and provide a flood of inspiration for anyone who would want it. To think of Jesus as being troubled in mind seems to be completely contrary to our Savior. After all, as it says in the book of Hebrews, he was holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners. How could he have been troubled? The fact is, there were three recorded instances in his life where he was troubled. Were these experiences a show of weakness or doubt? Did Jesus have some flaw that we never talk about? Well, the answers are no and no. What these experiences do show us is the amazing fortitude, courage, and godliness of the man, Christ Jesus. So coming up in today's podcast, folks, we all get emotionally troubled, and we all sometimes feel like our burdens are too heavy. Jesus actually does, from personal experience, know what that's like. Segment one defines what this personal stress looks like, and segment two shows us the first time Jesus himself felt it. Have you ever felt the pressure of lots of people looking at you to see what you will do and how you'll do it? Have you ever felt the heart-wrenching pain of being betrayed by a close friend? In segments three and four, we walk through Jesus' own experiences with these exact things. There is so much to learn. And finally, being troubled and weighed down stinks, and we all know it. In segment five, we look at the powerful conclusions of how Jesus handled his deeply troubling experiences and how we can be totally better off as a result of what he did. So, Jonathan, as we get started, first of all, why are we making such a big deal out of being troubled? Well, Jesus was perfect, and he felt things very deeply. And Rick, he had a lot of pressure on him. Yeah, he did. And we are only going to begin to scratch the surface and trying to understand that as we go through this. So, when we talk about Jesus being troubled, there was a specific word that was used. What, what is that word, Jonathan? What, is, what does it mean? Well, it means of uncertain affinity to stir or agitate. 
And, and Rick, I found some synonyms to go along with the word trouble, uh, things we can relate to. Anguished, distressed, pained, anxious. Does it sound like our day? Yeah, it sounds like our day. <laughs> sounds like things that we've had to deal with around oh, yeah. here. <laughs> lots. <laughs> lots. Yeah, lots and lots, especially these days with the pandemic and all those things we're dealing with. So, so Jonathan, let's look at three different scriptural examples of other individuals who were troubled, and, and using that exact same word that has that sense of agitated in heart or mind. And remember, we're going to be looking at what Jesus himself experienced in relation to being troubled. Our first example of someone else is in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, and this is about Zacharias uh, before the birth of his son, who would be John the Baptist. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. So Zacharias saw this incredibly powerful angel standing by the right side of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was pushed out of his comfort zone. He's visited by unexpected and enormous power. That's scary. It is. It was scary. And of course, the angel says, don't be afraid. Like, like you're just going to say, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> but, you know, angels do that a lot. They're always saying, don't be afraid. And everybody's going, yeah, sure. You try to be in my shoes. But the, the point is, he's pushed way out of his comfort zone because this was completely unexpected. And it was, it was very unsettling for him from the inside out. That's the first example. Second example is in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 3. Now, <clears throat> after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod, King Herod, hearing about Jesus and the star and all of this, was agitated. He saw a looming threat that would need to be quashed. Quashed? Really, Rick? I had to look that word up because <laughs> I'm not used to that word. I don't know. It just of The word quashed means rejected or avoided by a legal procedure. Yeah, it's like squashed, only legal. Okay, how's that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're a wordsmith. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Herod was really agitated to the point of changing things, to the point of lying about things to the wise men. He needed to find out what this was because he saw it as a threat. It would internally upset the way he thought. And again, we're using this as an example of what this word, the power of this word, because when you say, oh, somebody's troubled, you know, sometimes we think, well, they're just a little unsettled. No, no, this is much, much deeper than that. Our third example, we've had Zacharias and we've had King Herod. Our third example is in Matthew 14, 26 to 27, and Jesus is walking on the water. Now, that's something you don't see every day. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. So the disciples weren't just a little bit unsettled, like, hey, look. Rick, a... they were terrified. <laughs> and you've given life-shaking examples here. Yes. This word trouble is not this mild, meek trouble. Right. This is heavy duty. It is, and that's why we're taking the time to go through different examples, because what we want to, the, the point that's really important here is Jesus was a man, 
and he had that same experience. So the word, like you said, it's not some small little irritation. It refers to a strong sense of discomfort in your life. So putting that all in perspective, we're going to be dropping in on a a YouTube video called How to Stay Positive on a Bad Day by Robin Sharma. And he gives uh, five different points about staying positive on on a bad day. Now, his points are kind of generalized, and they're not going to follow really the story of Jesus so much, but they're good pieces of advice for us to use when we're troubled by the things that are around us. So this first piece, this first soundbite from him, is about perspective. And I'm going to dial right into the first one, which is perspective. You know, perspective is a word that seems very simple, but I think it's very powerful. It's very easy to get Uh, seduced into making something small a lot larger than it is. And perspective simply reminds us to go to 50,000 feet on a bad day and count our blessings. Perspective simply reminds us that things could be a lot worse. Perspective on a bad day is simply understanding that we live in a world where half the world's population lives on less than $2.50 a day. Perspective on a bad day is reminding yourself of that Persian proverb which says, I cursed the fact I had no shoes until I saw the man who had no feet. So, you know, perspective, and I like the illustration where he said, you know, you have to go up to 50,000 feet. What he's saying is you have to back away from from looking at your experience right in front of your face and see the larger picture through God's eyes. So that's important, and we're going to see how Jesus actually does that. So perspective, a good way for us to start dealing with our agitated, terrified, out-of-comfort-zone type of experiences. So when Jesus was baptized, way beginning at at the beginning of his ministry, the first thing he did, we all know, is he went off to fast and pray. He wanted to be by himself with God and just focus on the mission at hand. So he goes off to do that. The first thing Satan does is essentially he follows him, and he tries to derail him. Satan failed at that, but Satan did not quit. Now, we're going to be revisiting the temptations as we go through the podcast, but this is after the temptations. Here's what it says about Satan in Luke 4.13. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. So what's the key point of that scripture, Jonathan? Well, if he departed for a season, that means I'll be back. <laughs> yes, it means I'll be back, and I'm waiting, and you think, you think you, you bested me now, but wait. And he will pounce when he can. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and so this is an important aspect as we deal with the trouble, and you'll see how it fits in as we get to the next segment. So what if Satan was going to again try and derail Jesus, but this time at the end of his ministry? He tried at the beginning. What if he would reappear at the end of his ministry? Good question. What if Satan would pay attention and watch all that was unfolding and then try to subtly trip him up? Well, he is crafty. Think about it. He easily tricked Eve. You know, she was nothing. But uh, we're talking here about the only begotten. Now, that's another thing. But that doesn't mean he's going to give up. Right. And because Satan's very existence depends on his own success. So he's got a lot of motivation here. So as a principle, we just lay it on the table. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, to help us deal with the troubling things in our lives. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So those three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, they are things that will inevitably trouble us if we are trying to walk a spiritual path. Okay, so we've got the groundwork here, just basic groundwork, what troubled really means. It's a very deep thing. We looked at Satan walking away from Jesus, but knowing that he's going to come back, and we looked at things that we need to be aware of. So here's the thing. Um, Jonathan, let, let, let's give a, just a, an overall wrap-up of this, this segment here. Well, because humanity is given free choice, that means we all have within us the emotions that can be stirred up towards anxiety. Both Adam and Jesus had them, and both were tested. See, it's important to realize that Jesus had emotions as a human, just like Adam did. And Adam, I'm sure, was troubled when Eve sinned and said, here, here's the fruit, you know, it's really not so bad. This wasn't like, oh, cool, I think I'll have a bite. He had to have struggled with that. We don't know, it's not written, but it just makes sense to me that he had to have struggled with that. Jesus was tested as well, and that's the point of this. And as we proceed, we're going to really take a look at what Jesus' testings were all about. So it's pretty simple. The ability to be anxious and troubled is natural and necessary. The key is to master it. When Jesus first shown to be troubled, what does this agitation look like in a perfect man? Did you know we have one-page companion Bible studies for our most recent podcast episodes? Listen to the episode, follow along with our CQ Rewind show notes, and for your own bite-sized Bible study or group study, check out the Bible study questions content. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Bible study in the main menu. Have some study time and then contact us with any additional questions or comments. Now let's continue the conversation. The Gospels record almost all of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry without the troubled spirit that we're exploring. Interestingly, throughout his ministry, we do see Jesus angry, firm, loving, challenging, compassionate, friendly, and focused. However, once the end is near, things change. And you say, well, you know what, why, why would things change once the end is near? And Jonathan, it's because when you get near the conclusion of something— the pressure mounts. Absolutely. And again, we see Jesus through the eyes of being a perfect man. Doesn't mean he didn't experience the pressure. And I really believe that's where this trouble came from, this troubled spirit, and that's where Satan saw his opportunity. We're going to start with John 11. Just drop in on, on John chapter 11. One event pretty major event, actually, but one event that um, introduces the first time Jesus is troubled. The miracle of the raising of Lazarus was the most dramatic of all miracles. And Rick, um, remember, Lazarus was in the tomb for four days, and that means his body really started decomposing. What an amazing miracle that truly was to bring him back to life. Yeah, it, you know, it was so far after he had died that, you know, there's, there's no question about the miraculous power being shown here. And Jesus knew. Jesus knew the time of Passover. You know, the raising of Lazarus was probably a few weeks before, okay? Um, and, and so Jesus knew uh, the time of Passover, and therefore his death was approaching. And up to this point, Jesus has been shielded from the depths of darkness surrounding him. Now, before we get into all of that, 
Um, let's go back to the How to Stay Positive on a Bad Day by Robin Sharma. He talked about perspective, and he's using P words. It's one of the reasons I love the guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and to, to just give us a sense of how to handle the troubling aspects of a bad day. So here's his next P word in his five steps. Which brings me to the second P of turning a bad day into a great day, and it's pivot. And here's the question to really help you pivot. W-T-O-H, what's the opportunity here? So you're having a bad day, maybe you had a fight with someone, maybe you lost the big sale, maybe someone cut you off in traffic and then you didn't get your favorite lunch and then you missed getting into soul cycle class and then you had a difficulty on the way home. So let's say that's happening. You simply run the WTOH question, which will allow you to pivot. WTOH, what's the opportunity here? I like that. What's the opportunity here? And you need to pivot. You need to turn. And, you know, say we make a mistake. We have a fight with with a loved one. The opportunity is humility to say you're sorry. And how does that change a relationship? Wonderfully. Because there's respect and appreciation and love, and then you move forward, right? There's nothing like saying you're sorry, and there's nothing like meaning what you said. Amen. So you're right. Pivot. Turn. Now, Jonathan, before we get into the experiences of Jesus at the end of his ministry, we want to understand that up to the point, up to this point in the ministry for almost three and a half years, he was essentially protected in some ways from the deepest of the darkness. You say, well, wait. How is that possible? Well, listen to how the scriptures read on that. Luke 4, 28 to 30. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And Rick, another example is in John 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So there were several instances before the end of his ministry where people were angry enough to try to put an end to him. And in every case, he was delivered because his hour had not yet come. He had a level of protection from these things. That was all about to change. And really, the raising of Lazarus from the dead was the event that really put that change in motion. So when we're talking about Jesus being troubled, there are three things that do it. The first is in the context of this raising of Lazarus. The troubling task before Jesus is this, being the chosen one to counter sin, sickness, and death. Being the one to counter sin, sickness, and death. The weight of this responsibility was just too much for us to imagine. I mean, Jonathan, I I can't fathom it. The pressure was on. He had to be loyal. He had to be faithful in every degree. That's beyond our comprehension. You know, we can argue, well, he had to be faithful through his whole ministry up till now. Yes, he did. But now the closer you get to the end, the more the testings are going to be and the closer Satan will be. And we're going to see that very, very shortly. So let's drop in on the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Because this would begin a chain of events that would lead to the death of sin. The pathway to that victory over sin, though, was through personal torture and through personal death for Jesus. So it was a costly, costly path. And here we, here we, we drop in on the story. We're only taking a moment with the story. 
His friend, his good, good friend Lazarus is dead. And now Jesus is coming back to where Lazarus lives. We drop in on John chapter 11, uh, verses 30 through 44. We're going to do selected verses here. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews came also, which were weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So, Jonathan, this is the first time in Scripture where it says that Jesus was troubled, using that very specific word. It's interesting to me that he's troubled. It's the death of his good friend, and he's seeing all these people, and it says he's deeply moved in spirit, and he's troubled, and then he cries. You know, it's interesting to me. The first time he's troubled, he actually cries. Jesus wept. So it shows, like you said earlier, the depth of his heart. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when you think about what he was seeing and think about what he was feeling, his good friend was, 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 was dead, and everybody is mourning. And, and, and uh, Mary, when she came to see him, her words were, if you would have been here, you wouldn't have died. And it was really simple. You know, you could have stopped this. And she was right. He could have. Yep. So he's troubled at the the, the weight of the responsibility of what he's seeing with the sadness of sickness and death. Jonathan, a quick little side note. We have a CQ Kids video called Did Jesus Ever Cry? And it touches on this moment in a very, very, very wonderful way. CQ Kids videos, you can find those on YouTube. Did Jesus Ever Cry? Check that out. So here we have Jesus weeping because he's troubled. He's agitated deep inside of his heart. Here is where Satan, I believe, Satan's embedded temptation comes to play. His embedded temptation would follow the pattern of the first wilderness temptation. Remember, Satan tempted Jesus three different times in the wilderness. That's right. Okay, so let's go back to the first wilderness temptation and see what the connection might be. So we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Okay, and I like the way you read that. If you are the Son of God. (laughs) You know, talk about drawing the line in the sand. You know, laying down the gauntlet, just saying, okay, show us what you've got. And you think, okay, well, this temptation is about turning stones into bread. What has that got to do with raising Lazarus? And the answer is nothing. But the connection, the connection is not in what what Satan said. It's in what Jesus answered. And Jesus' answer was, "Every, every man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let's remember that, okay? So Satan is really tempting him. Okay, you've got power to do what nobody else can. Go ahead, just do it. Use it for good. Use power, strengthen yourself, go conquer the world. Does Jesus fall for that? No, he doesn't. Okay, we're going we're gonna to stop there with that. Now let's go back to Lazarus. Okay, Lazarus is in the tomb, and the mourning around Jesus is just growing, and it's so 
deeply sad. We're getting back to John chapter 11, uh, verse 36 and 30, 36 to 38. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. So once again, the average person there is saying, could not he have kept him alive? And Jesus is hearing this. And it says, so again, being deeply moved, he, he came to the tomb. So you can see he is carrying the weight, literally the weight of the world on his shoulders as he's observing the death of his great friend. I mean, Lazarus's home was the place that he went to, to, to get away from everybody and everything. So this was a great friend of his. And everybody's saying, you could stop this. You could have stopped this if you were only here. So being troubled always brings decision. Always. For all of us, and it did for Jesus. It's easy to take the low road. Jesus took the high road. Okay, and we'll, we'll explain that as we see Jesus' response and then put it all together. So now we're still in uh, John chapter 11. We're picking up in, with verse 38 and going through verse uh, 44. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you, and you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrapping, and his face was wrapped round with a cloth. Jesus said then, unbind him and let him go. And Rick, here's an example of Jesus being faithful and giving God the glory. How about an opposite example? How about Moses when he smote the rock twice? Let's read how he was under duress in Numbers 20, verse 11. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Moses forgot to give God the glory. That's why he was not able to go to the promised land. So here's a practical question, Rick. How can we continue to glorify God when we're under such stress with this virus all around us? Yeah, you know, bringing it right up to date, you know, you've got COVID-19 you know, engulfing so many parts of the world at this point, and, and there is a lot of stress around us. How do we manage the stress? Do we see a godly answer or a personal answer? And, and you're right, Jesus sought the godly answer, and he says out loud, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. So, you know, he's proclaiming to the audience of people around him that he's talking to God and then he calls Lazarus forth. Yeah, go ahead. But what does it have to do, Rick, with the first temptation in the wilderness from Satan? How is, where's the connection yeah. here? Well, it's interesting because Jesus says, Father, I thank you, you've heard me, which means God spoke to him. Okay? Right, true. So, so you have the word of God right there. Okay? That's the first oh, connection. Okay. Okay? Jesus, in that first temptation, answered Satan, saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus was given the word of God to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then Jesus spoke the words of God. Lazarus come forth, and he who was dead came forth from the grave. 
Lazarus literally lived on the word of God. Wow. It's, that is a cool connection. It's the answer that counted. And Jesus, when you see this and you see Satan trying to tempt him to, hey, look, you can take the credit. You know, it can be all about you. You could just raise him. I know you're going to do it. Just raise him and people will look at you. And Jesus answers, no, no, it's, it's the word of God that drives me and should drive every one of us. So that's what we need to understand and see in the connection. Jesus was troubled with the weight of the responsibility. And how did he handle the weight? Well, let's look at lifting the troubled mind of Jesus. We looked at the troubling task, and now let's look at how to lift his own troubled mind. Jesus was able to show his father to the crowd and gave him glory by praying out loud. This would witness to all that God in heaven has sovereignty over all. God has sovereignty. Jesus came to show everyone that God has that sovereignty. Make no mistake, when he was troubled in heart because of the heartbreak of sin and death and feeling the weight of being the one to take those things away, the first thing he does is turn to God and make sure that the people around him realize it's God, not him. So, what do I do when faced with the task of giving God glory or trying to keep it for myself? Am I humble? So Jesus instinctively gave God the glory. When and how would Satan next try and derail him? Other podcasts may have show notes, but we have the ultimate bonus episode show notes that simply go way beyond and are much more comprehensive. Look for the CQ Rewind show notes tab on our episode pages. And a big thank you to our Christian Questions volunteer team for releasing this exclusive content every week on ChristianQuestions.com. The book of John uniquely captures the humanness of Jesus. Chapter 12, which is the very next chapter, Jesus reveals, it reveals Jesus' next troubling experience. This one, this troubling experience would be entirely different. Jesus showed he could handle the weight of salvation, and now would come the challenge of something even bigger. Something, and you think, well, okay, wait, wait, how can you get bigger than the weight of salvation? Because that's pretty heavy. But, that's for sure. But we'll see. Okay, let's first go back to Robin Sharma, How to Stay Positive on a Bad Day. Remember, he talked about perspective and he talked about pivoting. And now here's his third uh, piece of advice, which really has some good practical uh, applications for us in dealing with the trials of our own lives and the troubles that we all face. The third P is pharmacy. And that's all about moving. When I have a difficult day, here's one of the first things I do. I will get on my mountain bike and I will ride like a bat out of wherever through the forest. And that releases dopamine in my brain, which is the neurotransmitter of inspiration. And that releases serotonin moving right on the bicycle. It releases serotonin, which is the pleasure neurotransmitter. And it cuts down on my cortisol, which is the fear hormone. So just simply going for a mountain bike ride or going for a swim or getting into yoga class or something as simple as going for a walk or maybe even doing jumping jacks when no one's looking will create a pharmacy of mastery within your brain which will affect your psychology, your neurobiology 
and your interior life, which makes you just feel a lot better. You know that. Such good advice. It's simple. Do something. Get up. Move. Change, change your state, if you will, so that you can change what you're doing and what you're thinking about. I can't swim anymore. The pool's closed. So guess what? I do jumping jacks where no one's looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I would suggest that maybe you could do them for a CQ video, but maybe not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's not go there. Let's not go there. All right. I agree with you. <laughs> All right. Um, so getting back to the story now, we saw Jesus in that first experience of being troubled, carrying the weight of the the experience of being the bringer of life. And that's a heavy burden that we can't even imagine. Let's go to Satan's second temptation in the wilderness, put it on the table first, and then go to Jesus' second experience of being troubled. So Satan's embedded temptation, which is going to come up in, in at the end of his ministry, early on uh, when he was in the uh, wilderness with, with Jesus, that second temptation would follow the pattern. Um, it, it would follow the I'm sorry. It would follow the pattern of the second temptation in the wilderness. I just confused the whole thing. Going back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So now here we're going to see not only what Jesus said in response, but also what Satan did. It says the devil took him into the city. Satan put Jesus in a place for all to see. And his thought was, surely, if I bring him here to the pinnacle of the temple and say, hey, cast yourself down so God can miraculously save you, and then you've got all the people running to worship you because you are so incredibly powerful, surely Jesus would want the people to worship him. That was the temptation in the wilderness, and Jesus simply said, you don't tempt God. You don't tempt God. Fast forward now to the end of his ministry, after the raising of Lazarus, now this is probably about a week later where this next troubling task uh, comes into play. And what, what is that next troubling task, Jonathan? Well, it's witnessing firsthand the overwhelming magnitude of providing salvation for all. So we talked about the weight of taking out sin. Now we look at this next experience where Jesus is troubled, and he is witnessing the overwhelming magnitude of providing salvation. We're in John chapter 12. The context of this is Jesus had just ridden victoriously into Jerusalem for all to see. And he was proclaimed king before hundreds of thousands of people. The question would be, is Jesus going to bask in that glory? And Jonathan, you remember when he's riding into the city, he's riding on the donkey. And, That's right. And several commentators have said there were two, three, or 400,000 people outside the city. And they are wow. putting down the palm branches before him, shouting Hosanna. He had them in the palm of his hand. They were ready to follow him right then and there. What would he do with that? So we go through after he rides into the city. John chapter 12, verses 20 to 36 is where we're going to begin to see the context of him becoming troubled. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, 
who from Bethsaida and Galilee and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And Rick, I believe that Jesus kind of ignored the distraction from the Greeks. It wasn't their time to follow him. Uh, he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We know that from Matthew 15, 24. So I, I think he kind of laid that aside. What yeah. do you think? Well, and you wonder, okay, why would he do that? You know, I mean, I mean, he talked to Samaritans. So, you know, why would he do that? I think you've got something there. And let, let's go to the next piece of what Jesus says, and let's go back to that thought, because I think there's something important that we want to talk, to, talk about here. But see, here is where the subtle crossroad comes into play that becomes so troubling. When we have troubling experience in our lives, we are always coming to a crossroad. Always, always, always. So how do we handle the pressure of the moment? There was the pressure of the moment. Jesus had ridden into the city. He was the center of attention. These Greeks did want to come talk to him. And what is his response when he says, okay, these, these folks want to see you? What you just read is the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he continues, and listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? So he, by not responding to the Greeks, talks about the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That sounds great. That sounds wonderful. He just rode into the city. Sounds like he's all ready. And then he talks about dying. And then he says in verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. But what should I say? God, take me away from this? No, that's why I'm here. That's why I came yes. for this moment, right? Yeah. And, and so the troubling aspect, I think, comes on the heels of three or 400,000 people shouting to him and praising him and being willing to follow him right then and there comes as a fact that these, these foreigners even want to talk with him. And I do believe you're right, Jonathan. He puts them off because his experience is not about living in, in glory at this moment. It's about dying. Yeah, and he's not showing any pride, Rick. Um, he's always thinking of others because he, he gave an example. Something has to die to give life to others. Yeah. He is explaining that my followers, if I don't die, won't have life again. Right. So he is taking the work, you know, he's taking the focus off himself. And so again, when we look back at Satan's temptation, Satan, remember, took him into the, into the holy city, stood him on the pinnacle of the temple, big high place. Jesus had ridden into the holy city in front of all these people. So it's kind of like what Satan was trying to set up in the wilderness actually, actually came happened in, in, in near the end of his ministry when Literally he's Literally happened. So he is, has this temptation. The magnitude of Jesus' task was plain. The masses of the world were expect, in expectation of deliverance. They were in a place where all could see him. And what does he do? You already mentioned this part, but just read it again. The end of verse 29, uh, 27, I'm sorry, and then 28 and 29 of John chapter 12. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. 
So he says, Father, glorify your name. And he obviously says this out loud. And then you have this voice from heaven. This is pretty, pretty astounding. Now, it sounds like people, it says, you know, some people thought it was thunder. So you, did they hear words? You know, you could debate back and forth. But the idea here is that this voice from heaven confirmed what Jesus had said. He said, Father, glorify your name. And this voice from heaven says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Interesting thing, Jonathan, is this is the third time in Jesus' ministry that a voice came from heaven about Jesus and his, his, his work. The first time was at his baptism. And we're going to see that each time the voice comes from heaven, it expands what was said in each time. So at the baptism, just sum up, what was that voice? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that introduced Jesus as the Messiah. Okay, now the second time a voice comes from heaven is that in the Mount of Transfiguration. And what did that add? Listen to him. Okay, this is my beloved son in whom I well pleased. Listen to him. That verified Jesus as the Messiah and as the way to life. This third experience of this voice coming from heaven, what does it say? I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And that, and it meaning God's own name, because that's yes. what Jesus asked for. And that confirms Jesus as the Messiah and the bringer of glory to God. So Jesus is saying to those around him, Father, glorify your name. And this voice from heaven comes and says, it's done. And that gives Jesus this, 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 this confirmation that hadn't existed before. And this is really cool. Here's what Jesus says next in verse 30 through 31, 30 through 32 of, again, we're in John chapter 12. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So the confirmation comes that God's name will be glorified, and Jesus answers and says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan is trying to get Jesus to give in to the crowds and to become their leader, and he's trying to, to sh sh get Jesus to show himself as something big. Doesn't that sound familiar in Satan's own existence? <laughs> oh, it, it does. Isn't that what he did? That's exactly what he did. So, you know, Jesus' answer to Satan was, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's what Satan had done originally. And so in this temptation, in this troubling experience with this magnitude of the thousands and the hundreds of thousands of people and knowing that salvation rested on his shoulders for all of those people and that he would have to essentially disappoint them first before giving them life much, much later, he proves to be thoroughly totally faithful, and he proclaimed Satan's defeat and the coming of salvation. And after Jesus spoke a little bit more about being the light of the people, he concludes in this way in verse 36 of John chapter 12. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Isn't that interesting? He has just been this public spectacle that everybody is adoring, hundreds of thousands. And after all of this, he goes away and hides himself from them. Doesn't that give you a sense of the humility 
that he had. It's incredible to me. That's right. Humility is definitely the first thing you think of. And also, God's timing is always perfect. And there, there, there wouldn't have been, well, there would have been an opportunity for the scribes and Pharisees to take him away before the, the right time. So it was best for him to be put away, hidden, uh, so that the timing was perfect when uh, he did offer himself. So Jesus had God's will in mind. So the yes. weight, the troubling of the magnitude and essentially having to let them down. And, you know, when, when he was crucified a week later, these folks are looking at this saying, what a waste. And he knew that that would be the reaction. But the weight of their salvation was bigger than making them feel good. It was about giving them life so they could be good eternally. So how did Jesus go through the lifting of his own troubled mind? Jesus' soul was troubled because he saw the magnitude of work he was doing. Jesus here refocused his own dedication, and God confirmed Jesus' faithfulness. So he simply refocused, said it out loud, went and hid himself. He was all about the Father's work. So even when he's troubled and Satan is bearing down on him, he is able to keep it in perspective. What a great example for us. So what about me? Do I redouble my own dedication when I'm troubled? Well, Rick, uh, that's a practical pandemic wake-up call right here and now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what? On a personal note, uh, in the evenings after dinner, my mom, who lives with us, uh, you know, sits down and watches some TV, and I sit with her and keep her company. And when she goes up to bed, it's very tempting to want to keep watching and just, you know, be a nudge. <laughs> and because of this pandemic and and the things that are happening in this world, I said, you know, I'm shutting the TV off at this time and I am reading something spiritual so that I can honor the Lord and think of him when I go to sleep. He's on my mind and none of this other clutter uh, is on my mind. So Jonathan says, when you are troubled in life, don't be a nudge. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> but no, very, very practical, practical application of doing something that gives honor to God. That's exactly what Jesus did, and he handled the troubled, the deep anxiety of his own heart. That's what we're trying to understand here. So Jesus' ability to handle the magnitude of salvation gives a whole new meaning to grace under pressure. Jesus has thus far accepted the weight and magnitude of his salvation mission. What would be next? Our YouTube channel has a lot going on. Go to ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Featuring new releases every week. Check out our playlists like CQ Kids, Moments That Matter, and CQ Bible 101. Plus, we have even more new series content planned to roll out soon. So stay tuned at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. You know, the tricky thing about plowing through times when we're legitimately troubled always revolves around timing. For Jesus and for us, Satan's always attentive to our human strains and difficulties and will seek to use them to bring doubt and failure. That's what he's about. The question is, how will I respond to what Satan is trying to bring to me? Will I walk in Jesus' footsteps or will I decide on my own path? And Jonathan, Jesus was troubled. You know, we saw the, 
the experiences of the weight of salvation and the magnitude of salvation. We're going to get into a third one, but before we do that, let's go back to Robin Sharma, how to stay positive on a bad day, and now he's got another P word for you to help you put things into the correct perspective. Let's listen. The fourth P in turning a bad day into a great day, pages. You know, I love journaling. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, people who have gone through difficulty, people who are experiencing calamity and chaos, open a journal, turn to a fresh white page, and pour their pain or pour their confusion, pour their frustration out onto that page. It does something so powerful. It allows for a profound release of what you're experiencing out onto the written page. Here's the key. If you repress and suppress your feelings of anger, of sadness, of disappointment, all of those lower energy feelings, if you keep them inside, they not only build up toxicity and they build up resentment and frustration, but those are the very things that lead to inflammation that create dis-ease. So the idea of putting it on paper, my wife is very, very good at that. And it helps her to put things in order and sort things out. And just the idea of having an outlet, that's what we need. We need to have an outlet. And, you know, when you think about Jesus, he had, his outlet was to go be alone with his father. You that's know, right. Get away from everything and just take that time to recharge. At the end of his ministry, Jonathan, he didn't have a lot of that time. Too much pressure on him. And the troubling came, and it came in waves. And Satan was, when he was troubled, Satan was always there. We looked at John 11, the raising of Lazarus. We looked at John 12, with the experience of riding into Jerusalem and being troubled afterwards. Now we go to John 13. It's interesting. It's John 11, 12, 13. And next segment is going to be John 14. It's kind of a nice, neat little package. <laughs> no, the I Bible, like it wasn't written in chapters, but it certainly works out nicely here. But we're going to pick up on John 13. About a week after Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he's in the upper room with his closest friends for their last time of fellowship before he's going to die. Jesus is again troubled, and Satan is right there to pounce all over it. So let's again go back to the wilderness experience at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and we're going to find Satan's embedded temptation at the end of the ministry would follow the pattern of the third wilderness temptation at the beginning of his ministry, Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10, for that early wilderness temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So what Satan does in that early wilderness experience is he presents a shortcut to personal glory and honor. He said, look, forget the sacrifice, forget all that stuff. I'll give you what you came for, all the kingdoms of the world. That's what you came for, right? Look, they're yours. All you have, one little thing you have to do, just one little thing. Just bow down and worship me, and you've got them. Don't even worry about the work. They're yours. That was the temptation at the beginning of his ministry. Of course, Jesus' response is, you shall not worship anyone but the Lord your God. You serve him only. That's the end of it. How does that fit in here at the end of Jesus' ministry? This is the night before he is to die. So the troubling task for Jesus is what? 
knowing that the final trial is hours away and facing the fact that your trusted friend will place you into the hands of those who would crucify you. What a profound personal cost. Can't even imagine such a deep level of betrayal that is so life-changing. Can't even imagine. We drop in, again, we're just touching on these experiences. In John chapter 13, we're going to be touching on verses 19 through 35. Let's go 19 to 21 to begin. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. So you wonder why he becomes troubled in spirit after he says, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and who receives me receives him who sent me. I mean, that sounds like a wonderful thing. It does. But he comes, becomes troubled. Why? You know, and I'm wondering, Jonathan, you know, and I don't know this, but I'm wondering, is, is, is he's looking around at his, at his 12 apostles at this moment, and he says, he who receives whomever I send receives me. He saw Judas sitting there. And he had sent Judas before, just like he had sent the other 11. And maybe he's looking at Judas saying, whoever receives whomever I send, oh, look, I sent him. And yet he is about to betray me. And perhaps that was the key that brought this troubled anxiety upon him, like such a close friend. How can this be such a good Good. He's been traveling with me for years. We've been together all this time. So maybe that's the cause of this deep anxiety. And the crossroad here for Jesus is treacherous. Do you lash out because of your pain, or do you acquiesce to God's providence? Well, I guess we should ask ourselves a question, because we know what Jesus did. That's right. But what would I do? I mean, I can't—Jonathan, if— and I, and I know this is not in the realm of reality, but if I was ever in an experience where, where, where you and I, one of us betrayed the other, it would be the most heartbreaking thing. I, can, I, can't, even, I can't even get my head around it. Oh, that, that would be. That would be awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you see, oh. and you see our Lord there the night before his crucifixion, and this is what's happening. The crossroad is treacherous. Here's what happens. Verse 22 of John chapter 13. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss of knowing which one he was speaking about. So they, and we're, we're, we're cutting out several verses to save time. So they asked Jesus who it is. Jesus never mentions the betrayer's name. He just shares his bread with him. He extends the personal bond of friendship by sharing food, because in those days, that was a symbol of deep friendship when you shared your food at the table with someone. And that's shown in verse 27 uh, through 30 here. And again, we're, we're, we're skipping a few verses to save some time. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Satan is cast out. It came from a family member. It's personal. Judas and the apostles were Jesus' family. 
it hurt his heart. So if the Lord had this experience, we most likely will too. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, and, that, and that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to wrap your head around. But think about this in relation to the temptation in the wilderness, where Satan is tempting Jesus to just bow down and worship him and not have to go through pain. Think about the, be- the pain of betrayal, Jesus being willing to go through it. And he's basically saying to, to Judas, what you do, do quickly. So he's basically saying, you can leave now. It's time for you to leave. He's basically saying, go, you who represents satanic lies. That's what he's saying to Judas. You are representative of satanic lies because it says Satan enter- in- entered into him. Go from here. What you do is not going to matter. As hideous as what you're going to do is, it will not matter because I am set in doing God's will. So you've got this powerful pain of betrayal and this powerful passion for the will of God that overrides it in spite of his personal pain. To me, this is amazing. The pain of the moment is profound, and yet Jesus keeps his focus two places. First, obviously, he keeps his focus on his father. And this is, again, John chapter 13, now verses 31 and 32. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. You you see the similarity in the first experience by the tomb of Lazarus? He speaks out so God can be glorified. In the next experience, after riding into Jerusalem, he makes it so, Father, glorify your name. Here, with his just the, 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 the 11 now, he said it's all about glorifying God. This is the focus of Jesus through the deepest anxiety and troubles of his heart. This is thoroughly inspiring. So through this deeply troubled experience, Jesus then keeps his focus. First it was on his father, and now he focuses on his still faithful followers. Again, uh, John 13, verses 33 to 35. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So he takes what he has experienced, and he transforms it into love one another for you, because I am not here with you much longer, but I'm giving you the best of what I have. And the troubled and the anxiety of his own heart's while they weighed down on him in this betrayal, he still was able to overcome it and give them this incredible lesson of selflessness. And nobody knew selflessness like Jesus. That's obvious. So Jesus lifting his own troubled mind, how did he do it? In spite of the piercing pain of his great personal loss, Jesus still focused on God's path for him and was able to lift his true disciples up to a higher standard of love. The pain of loss, you know, you had the big experiences before. This is the personal heart experience. Satan is trying to get him any way possible, and yet he stays true to his father and to his followers. So the question is, what about me? How do I handle the troubling experiences of betrayal that I might have? 
Well, Rick, hopefully Christ-like. Yeah. <laughs> that is our goal. But uh, on a personal note, in my case, uh, I've made mistakes uh, when I've been betrayed by family members. But I've learned a lot of lessons from my mistakes. And at times I could see the, the Lord's hand in helping me to overcome at times where I, I wouldn't have unless I made those mistakes first. So we can learn from our mistakes and we learn from Jesus' faithfulness. You put the two together and you've got a great way to grow in Christ. So even in experiencing the depths of betrayal, Jesus stood strong. This is exactly the kind of example we need. We have seen Jesus overcome three deeply personal troubling experiences. What does he do next? It's been a privilege and exciting interacting with our listeners all over the world. Reach out to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com. In addition to always continuing the conversation on our website, in social media, and our YouTube channel. Learn more about becoming a Christian Questions ambassador. There are several impactful ways you can help us continue to spread the gospel message. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Support CQ in the top navigation menu. Join our incredible team of volunteers and find out more. Now back to Rick and Jonathan. We began these observations of Jesus' life by saying that he is our hero. These experiences spanned about three weeks and troubled him with the weight, magnitude, and personal cost of being the ransom for all. Jesus not only manages these things, he does what a hero does. He serves others. And Jonathan, that is, in my mind, that is the way you measure a true hero. What makes a hero? Who does he serve? So when you see Jesus served the entire world, every human being who ever lived, there's never been a hero like him. Just Amen. do the math. Okay, just do the math. So this gives us a, a tremendous, and, and folks, wait till you see what's coming in this segment. This gives us a tremendous sense of his faithfulness. Now, let's get back to Robin Sharma for our sakes. You know, how to stay positive on a bad day because, you know, we need every piece of encouragement we can get. And this is his fifth point to helping us stay positive. Which brings me to my fifth and final P in the five P's of turning a bad day into a great day. The planet. Now you're saying, Robin, what are you talking about here? Well, nature. Nature is life's sweet recovery method. Going for a walk in the, in the woods or walking on a beach and getting next to the ocean or if you live near a desert, getting out there or if you're blessed to live by the mountains, you know what I'm talking about. But when you go out to nature, it grounds you. When you connect with the planet, again, nature, what does it do? It gives you that recovery method so you actually breathe in the fresh air, but it reminds you you are part of something so much bigger than yourself. And maybe your bad day is taking you to a better place. You know, you've heard that old idea, but life doesn't really happen to you. Life really happens for you. And I love that, Rick. Um we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, having that bigger perspective. But life happens for you. These lessons and experiences will help you throughout eternity learn from the experience of sin and death and to, to rise above it. You know, we, we do need to feel that inspiration from God's beautiful creation, too. 
So he gives us, gives us a lot of very practical ways for us to manage ourselves. And, you know, on a spiritual level, we have the example of Jesus. And we're seeing these three experiences where he managed and overcame what was deeply troubling his heart. I mean, the heartbreaking type experiences. So let, let, let's go back to after Jesus' baptism just one more time. No more temptations are left, but there's a really important detail that we haven't touched on yet. After Jesus' baptism and a season of fasting and praying and testing, angels of God ministered to him to strengthen him for the road ahead. Satan had, for a time, been vanquished, and now the gospel would be preached. Let's go just touch on Matthew 4.11 for a moment for the point. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So the devil left him for a time, and we see that he's come back, but angels came and began to minister to him. Remember that. He was encouraged by an outside source, by a spiritual source, by a God-sent source. Three and a half years later, Satan would again attempt to derail the faithfulness of the Messiah, and we've been talking about that. Jesus would again vanquish him, this time for good. Now Jesus would not need angels for he himself would be the one ministering. Now think about this. John chapter 14. The troubling task is now done. What does John 14 show us, Jonathan? It shows us Jesus' overwhelming victory over self. Okay, now how does it show us that? Folks, remember, John 11, Jesus is troubled. John 12, Jesus is troubled. John 13, Jesus is troubled. Jesus in John 14 is assuring us that he had overcome. So can we. He's saying, I know personally what you go through. Listen to what he says in John 14, verses 1 through 3, and we'll stop after verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Do not let your heart be what? Troubled. Same word, Rick. Same word. Why? He's saying to us, to his followers, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because I know what you go through. I've been there. Believe in me. I can help you through this. I get shivers when I think about his taking these lessons, these hard lessons, and saying, believe in me because I've been there. Now, verses two and three. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It is and, all with it, all worth it, isn't it? Oh, oh, it is. And I, I love the concept. The Apostle Paul told us to press on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. Look at the goal in mind, no matter the troubles and the experiences you're going through, always focus on, on the end result. And, you know, when, and you say, well, you know, how can we do that? Because Jesus already did. And yes, he was perfect, but he knows the pain. And to me, Jonathan, that's what this entire podcast is about. Jesus knows the pain of having that heart anxiety in our lives. And he's saying, I've been there. I, you can relate to me because I can relate to you. Let me help you. Jesus is assuring us that when we're troubled, we'll have God's influence there to guide us. And so we're going to jump now down to near the end of John chapter 14, verses 25 to 31. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, it will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. 
So now at the end of this chapter, at the end of this talk that Jesus is having with his followers, he's saying, God's Spirit is going to come and, and dwell with you. The power and influence of God is going to be working within your lives. And Rick, without it, Satan would just take over and wipe out the followers of Jesus. This is that strength that God's giving the individuals following Jesus to rise above the flesh and to be able to handle the fiery darts from Satan. You're right. And we need God's spirit to to hold us up because Satan, just like Satan was after Jesus, he is after every true footstep follower of him because those of us who are attempting to follow in Jesus' footsteps are his target because we are where the plan of God will flow through with the ministry of reconciliation. So Jesus is showing us that the antidote for a troubled soul is the peace that he himself brings to us. And we see that powerfully in John 14, and let's do 27 through 31 now. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If I loved, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. It, if I go, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing to do with me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. You see the steely determination in the words and the actions of Jesus here. He's saying, don't be afraid. I'm giving you my peace. Where did his peace come from? Handling his human troubled spirit. That's where it came from. Having God's influence upon him and working through him so he could rise above those things and be faithful in a way that we can't even imagine. And so here in John 14, he's saying, I know your hearts are going to be troubled, but I've been there. Let me help you by sharing my experiences with you. And, you know, Jonathan, when I think of this, that steely determination, it's that focus that says, I will not quit. I will not turn to the left. I will not turn to the right. I know exactly what I have to do, and this is what's going to happen. It reminds me very much so of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 through 7. And this is prophetically talking about Jesus at the end of his ministry. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Rick, he, did have, he didn't have anything to be ashamed about. He focused and did God's will perfectly. Why would he uh, shudder under shame? You know, and, and the thing that's so important here is the stress and the pressure upon him was stress and pressure we can't even imagine. Remember, at the beginning, the first of those temptations was the, was the, the weight of salvation, the, the raising of Lazarus amongst all of these people and his friend and, and the weight of, of, of being the, the conduit through which the world would be raised from the dead. The second experience was after he had ridden into Jerusalem, and he, he was famous. He was famous 
Everybody wanted to follow him. And he went and hid himself. And he said, it's got to be God's glory, not my glory. And, and then in the third experience where he experienced the bitter betrayal of his, of his dear friend. And, he, and again, what does he talk about? Let the glory go to God. So you're right. He set his face like a flint. He had that stone-cold determination that says, I will not stop. That's how we can better handle our troubled lives. So lifting the troubled mind of Jesus' followers now, how do we do that? Whatever our deepest, hardest, and most troubling experiences, we are assured that Jesus knows them and that God hears us. We know that Jesus knows. We know that he knows. And therefore, we know that God hears us. And Jonathan, that is a combination. Now look, that doesn't miraculously make your troubled heart go away. We need to be able to manage through those things. And, and you know, we're talking about dealing with the experiences of life. We're not, at this point, talking about something, someone who's clinically uh, got anxiety or depression. As a matter of fact, we are going to be talking about that in a few weeks because that's a, that's a big thing, especially like you've been mentioning with this pandemic. You know, that kind of thing tends to come out with so much stress. But we're talking about the troubles that come upon us when, when the external experiences are too big and we don't know what to do and how to do it. Final scripture here. Final scripture that helps us pinpoint the incredible, powerful, and profound experience of Jesus himself. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Talk about a powerful scripture. You know, Hebrews is summing up Part of what, he, what Hebrews is summing up is what we just talked about in John 11, 12, 13, and 14. We have this high priest who has been tested like as we are, yet without sin. This gives us the feeling of understanding that Jesus is our leader. He is our master. He is the author, the finisher of our faith. We can go to him with everything, no matter how troubling and anxious it makes us feel because we have him. He's been there and he was faithful and he will lift the world to salvation. The true church earlier and the rest of the world later. Thanks to be to God for his unspeakable gift. Jesus, the man who suffered through the troubles of a human being who had God's spirit but had the incredible pressure of saving the world. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please, rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about Jesus is raised. How does that change me? He's raised. So what does that do for me? Talk to you next week. <laughs>